That's the story of being a workaholic and having an obsession that could never be really fulfilled. You know, yeah. it just has, you just keep going and going and going. Yeah. I mean, Kobe and I had this conversation about just being crazy obsessed. You know, he saw that in me. I saw that obviously in him. That's what bonded us together. Uh, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 42 of the Matt Happy Podcast. Uh, just me today. We dropped our Lakers collection today, which is super exciting. Uh, second year in a row that we've been able to do that. Uh, growing up in L.A. and loving basketball my entire life, it is really a dream come true uh, to even get to work with them in the first place, let alone two years in a row. Uh, was really, really special. Uh, this year, the whole concept of our collection was showtime and really honoring that decade in the 80s and the Lakers dominance that they were able to achieve there winning the five titles in 10 years and really something that totally revolutionized the way the game was played on the court and totally revolutionized the way that the game was perceived and marketed around the entire world it seems crazy to think about the NBA maybe not surviving or not being in great shape uh, with how incredible the league is doing now, but that really was the reality in the mid-70s, late-70s, coming off the ABA merger and things really in flux, people not knowing if this would really turn out to be anything, people selling the teams like it was nothing, Dr. Buss, you know, purchasing the Lakers for less than $200 $200 million, uh, in 1979, and now obviously they're a multi-billion dollar franchise, uh, so it was really, really cool to be able to tell that story, and there's no one outside of the players and the coaching staff who was as close to the story and the players and the era and everything as much as Andy Bernstein, and we got to talk to him, and it was really incredible, honestly, just stepping into his office was unreal all of the photos that this guy has taken you know it, it, it's no exaggeration for me to say that he is the most legendary basketball photographer of all time I mean these these iconic images that we've we've all seen whether you're a sports fan or not you know I'm talking about magic and 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 bird boxing each other out for that free throw or Michael Jordan crying on the trophy with his dad right behind him or you know Shaq holding up a Kobe in in the late 90s uh, like he's a baby really uh joined the Lakers I think in 81 or 82 uh and was there throughout that whole run so just to hear him share some stories that are just super cool about Kareem or or Magic or all the different players that he was able to really get a behind the scenes look at and then we get into some Kobe stuff too which which for me was just really special and personal um, and how close he was to him and they actually made a book together, uh, The Mamba Mentality, which came out a few years ago, which which Kobe asked Andy to do all the photography for. Uh, and Andy was like, you know, why why me? Like, why are you choosing me for this? And and he said that Kobe told him because you're just as crazy and, and, and obsessed with your craft as I am in kind of that maniacal way that we all know Kobe to be. Um, so, yeah, man. I mean, it was dope. It was dope to talk to Andy. Uh, he was the official photographer for USA Basketball, too. So we got into some Dream Team stuff in 1992, which is incredible. And, and I just totally nerded out and felt like a huge fanboy uh, for this. And he only kind of mentions it briefly at the end. But, you know, he dropped on me in our final moments that he's been in recovery and has also been sober for over 20 years. So 
for you guys to go into that knowing that obviously and 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 how mental health has obviously been a huge part of his life as well and and being raised in brooklyn uh from a jewish family and and coming out to la with really not much besides this passion for photography which was really nothing at the time uh and to see just what it's become is is amazing and he's a living legend who has touched so many of of my heroes and just captured pictures that you can't even explain and are completely timeless so it's really great to talk to him and hope you guys enjoy this episode with andy bernstein obviously i've been familiar with your work for a long time i mean i've i've grown up a diehard nba fan and even just to be in this office right now i'm i'm overwhelmed and and quite frankly i'm emotional i think it's really incredible the work that you've done and and worked for the lakers for over 30 years and the naismith basketball hall of fame and all these sorts of things and i think the coolest part is to learn about how you got to where you are and really where you came from uh so where did you grow up and and what was your childhood like well i grew up in brooklyn new york um i was a huge sports fan growing up um, so are you a Knicks fan as a kid? I was not, you know, really, honestly, was not a basketball fan at all. Really? Except I love baseball. Pl- I love playing hoops in the driveway. We had a hoop on my, you know, garage, and we used to play in the schoolyard. And mm-hmm. I was always the shortest kid in the block, but I, I was scrappy. You yeah. know, I had a pretty decent jumper. Yeah. When I was a kid. So were um, you a Dodgers fan? Then, no, I was. Fan? I was. A, I was a Rangers fan growing You're up. A Rangers. I fan. was a diehard Ranger fan, and my dad had season tickets my whole upbringing. Yeah. I mean, I remember. I think my earliest memories are probably seven or eight years old at the, the old garden mm-hmm. and then the new garden that opened, which is now the current garden yeah. in 71. Um, and we had season tickets and I, I probably went to most home games from when I was like nine years old wow. to when I went to college at 17. Yeah. Um, that so was, Puck was really your first love hockey. We, I just loved hockey. Yeah. yeah. Just let, we played street hockey. You know, we, we used to clear out the snow and the ice on the street where I lived on East 24th street and play roller hockey or foot hockey or whatever it was, you know, this was crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the second sport was baseball, Mm love baseball. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to grow up to be Bud Harrelson, who was my hero shortstop for the amazing Mets. Yeah. And, uh, I wasn't allowed to even mention the word Yankee in my house because my family were diehard Brooklyn Dodger fans. I mean, literally diehard. So, in fact, when I was born in 58, which is the year the Dodgers moved, mm-hmm. and if you see any pictures of my family, literally, like, the men are all wearing, like, black armbands, yeah. which they did because the Dodgers moved. And that's yeah. what Jewish people do when people die. Yeah, you oh, know? of course. So here's, like, this newborn and a toddler with men with black armbands. You yeah. know, this is yeah. very strange. I watched the uh, Ken Burns baseball a couple months yeah. ago, and just to see how the Giants and the Dodgers both left mm-hmm. the same year and just how devastated so yeah. many people were and it even pissed people off more because then it became only a yankee town exactly you know until Before the mets came until the yeah. mets came and they were a joke yeah when they started in 62 but by 69 they were amazing yeah literally and uh, um gil hodges the manager yeah. li- lived around the corner for me on oh, bedford wow. avenue i lived yeah. on east 24th street and bedford avenue was the next street and when the mets won the world series a bunch of us kids made a parade <laughs> Down Bedford Avenue, and uh, his wife, he and his wife came out. It was a beautiful, mo- it was an amazing moment. That's I mean, amazing. it's only yeah. like a like a small town moment yeah. in the middle of New York City. Yeah. yeah. So you're growing up, you're getting into sports. Uh, what's it like for school? Well, school, school. I wasn't much of a 
academic guy. Yeah, um, I, I can relate to I that. I got into photography early when I was 14. My dad had bought me my first camera. Wow. So I was always the kid who had a camera around yeah. his neck all the time. I mean... Was he into photography or well, my dad, why do you think he bought that for you? Well, my dad was into everything that he thought that he was good at. <laughs> my dad was a, was a psychologist okay. and he was also a college professor, but he, yeah. he thought he was an amateur carpenter, mm-hmm. uh, Could do it all. an amateur filmmaker, an amateur yeah. photographer. So he bought me this camera and we made this a trip that summer of my 14th year. We made a trip out to the Western United States to all the national parks mm. And uh, anyway, I started shooting pictures. Yeah. And we were shooting on slide film. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, you would buy Kodak Kodachrome film. Right. And the film would come with a mailer that you literally would take the fi- pictures <laughs> on the film. You take it out of the camera. You put it in the mailer, prepaid. And anywhere in, you are in America that has a mailbox. Right. You put it in the mailbox. It goes to Rochester. Yeah. This is how it happened. And then it gets mailed to your house. There's a little box that arrives at your house with slides in it, right. 36 slides. So we bought maybe 60 of these, you know, prepaid mailers with the film. Mm-hmm. And as we're shooting, you know, we're in Grand Teton or we're in Yellowstone right. or Mount Rainier or we're Yosemite, Grand Canyon, wherever, yeah. we would find the nearest mailbox and put the film in the thing, the Shipping mailer. And, and we honestly, I never thought I'd see that film ever again. Right. You know, it's like going somewhere, like some black hole. Yeah. We come home from the trip, and there's, there's like 40 of these boxes <laughs> waiting for us. And so we start rifling through these boxes. Yeah. And, and my dad, I'll never forget this. We're going through the boxes, and he's looking. Oh, look at this great picture I shot of, of Old Faithful. Look at this Grand Canyon. And, blah, blah, blah. and then we get to Mount Rainier, and he's like, this is an amazing picture that I took of Mount Rainier. And I, and I said, Dad, hold on a second. Can I just see that box? And he gives me the box, and I start looking, and I said, but, Dad, you know, you're in some of these pictures. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me like he was going to kill me. And he goes, all right, kid, all right, all right, you're pretty good. You took a couple, yeah. yeah. But this is back in the day when, you know, it's manual cameras, right. manual focus. You have to learn light. You have to learn composition. Yeah. Fo- you know, there was no manual, and he showed me a little bit, and I kind of learned by watching him. Yeah. Um, so I really learned the craft of photography. Yeah. And then it just, it just all crystallized because my friend Andrew Feldman had a dark room in his basement in Brooklyn. Mm. And he took me over there, took me over there one day we, in the 10th grade. We had, I had shot some black and white and he showed me how to develop the film. And then he showed me how to put it, you know, in the enlarger right. and expose it on the paper. And you yeah. got the yellow safe light. Everything. And then boom, you put in the solution and here comes this, like a magic trick, literally. Right. literally. The image just appears. It's just yeah. appearing, and I'm thinking, wow, that like started in my head because I saw that scene, whatever it was. I think we had shot some stuff at you know, like a basketball game at school. Right. And then I got translated through the camera onto this piece of film, and now it's coming up in this solution. Yeah. Like the craziest thing ever. Was there a moment for you where, one, like did you instantly fall in love with it, and two, oh, oh, was yeah. there a moment where it was like, hey, I – I might be pretty good at this. Both. I mean, I, I this that was you know that was my path. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I bounced around in terms of did I want to be a, like a, a film documentary photographer? Did I want to mm-hmm. be um, a news cameraman? Right. It started to fade away because I didn't want to be in those situations. You know? Yeah. And then I realized, look, I love sports and I love photography, 
So what could be better for a career than to marry the two passions together? Yeah. So while I was at University of Massachusetts, I was working for the local, our daily paper on campus. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing place, you know, to learn sort of on the job. But I wasn't learning the true craft and all the science and the history of Adarby and how to run a business and all did that stuff. Did you have a teacher at that point or was it still just I didn't, like you were learning everything No, I was just learning by myself. Yeah. I was Trial and error. Yeah. It was all, you know, freshman year. They sent me out on assignments and just winged it. what you got. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I knew my way around the dark room and stuff, but I learned right. how to work with an editor. I learned how to work with um, the page designer. You know, it was all done manually in those days. There's mm-hmm. nothing done on computer. Yeah. Um, so what happens after you graduate? At no, I didn't. So I was there through my sophomore year, and uh, the summer between sophomore and junior, I came out to California. Um, my sister was out here working and spent the summer with her. And I I got introduced to a school in Pasadena called Art Center, College of Design. I took a night class there. And I just realized at that moment that this is where I had to be. Yeah, you know? and, I, and that even was magnified because I remember the night class I took, I think it was every Wednesday, and the first class was just mind-blowing. Like yeah. the teacher was talking about creating photographs, you know, and, and and developing a style and all this stuff I never thought of. My sister lived off of Sunset Boulevard. Okay. And I was driving back to her apartment, and as you're coming down Sunset, you know, there's all these billboards. Yep. L.A. is famous for that. I never really noticed. You know, I mean, they're there, right? But then I started looking at these billboards, and I'm thinking, wow, like somebody had to take that cigarette ad, you yeah. know, or somebody had to take that, you know, they're selling jeans or there's, they're selling, you know, a trip, you know, travel mm-hmm. or a car or whatever. Like somebody right, had like, to actually do that. These are all photographs. Yeah, yeah. like this is like a career here, yeah. you know. So I, I made the big decision. I was going to applied to Art Center. They they accepted me, and I moved out here in in um, January, the, in the middle of the winter, January of seventy eight. Yeah, and it was just literally the blizzard of seventy eight was when I moved here. Wow! And uh, I landed in L A. It was eighty two degrees, and I'm thinking, well, this is I I made the right like call. a no brainer. Yeah, and um, I started Art Center in February, and I, from the very beginning. They told me I was in the wrong school. Why are you here? We don't teach that stuff. Mm. You know, you're here to be a studio photographer, to shoot cars, to be a fashion photographer. Right. It's like, you know, I'm a Brooklyn guy. Yeah. So you tell me I can't do something or in the wrong place, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. And that's what I did for four years that I was here. Was that hard for you to, to hear those things after no. you had just made the leap out here? No. No. I, no, I took it as a challenge. Yeah. You know, I took it as a direct challenge, like, okay, I'll prove you wrong. Yeah. And I'll use the school for any, you know, everything I can get out of it. Yeah. Education-wise. And what really helped me was that I had two teachers who believed in me, who who really saw, you know, a mix of moxie and talent mm-hmm. and drive. And one of, one of these teachers, Bill Robbins, actually hired me to work in his studio so I could learn how a studio worked. Yeah. Um, learned the business of photography. You know, I didn't had any idea. I didn't even had to open like a business checking account at a file for a resale right. number. Right. Yeah, any of that stuff. I mean, who knows that? Yeah. And I learned that all from him working there. And a, a phenomenal business. We had one business class the entire eight terms I was at Art Center. Right. Taught by the great Errol Gerson, who's still there fifty years later. Wow. Which is amazing. And uh, you know, I realized that. 
that, that this is really my path mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to prove everybody wrong. But that wasn't really the motivation. Right. The motivation was that I knew that I had it in me. Yeah. And I saw what other people were doing. I mean, I saw the, the great Sports Illustrated photographers who were right. making a living from it. I was working for some of them. Mm-hmm. Neil Leifer took me under his wing. I mean, that's like, you know. Right. It's some, as it gets at Like the one of the yeah. heads of Mount Rushmore yeah. coming down yeah. and taking in you under terms their of wing. A, like in terms of mental health, I always love to ask people, like, when – they first even became aware of their own mental health or did they have a first like mental health experience for you? I know you said you struggled in school and then yeah. you went to college in Boston and then moved out to the West coast. What was your mental health like at the time? And, and were you struggling with anything or was everything just coming pretty easily to you? Um, I was, I was struggling when I first came out here with hearing all the noise and not giving into it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there were times where I'm like, I don't like any of these classes. You yeah. know? I don't like shooting still lifes. I don't right. like shooting fashion. But I realized that it had a purpose. So you know, it was teaching me lighting. It was teaching me how to interact with people. Um, and that served me well later on. But I didn't right. realize it then. Right. I didn't like being in the dark room all night long, you know, right. which is what we had to do the first two or three terms there. Yeah. Um, well, in hindsight, I think we're all able to see some of the silver linings a bit more yeah. clearly. Yeah. yeah, but you don't see it at the time. No, of course you know? not. <laughs> but I, I, I plowed through. I, I, had, I think my attitude was was pretty positive in those days. Yeah. Um, you know, when I hung out my shingle and uh, wanted to become a photographer and, and not be an assistant anymore, Yeah. there were some really nervous times. I mean, I remember... You know, having nothing in the in the checkbook really mm-hmm. didn't know where the rent was coming from. I was paying one hundred seventy five dollars a month in rent. Wow! Um, and like literally, like looking at the phone, like, will you please ring? Right. You know, this is a phone right. like attached to a right. wire. You know, this is yeah. not a cell phone. Yeah. And were your parents like super supportive of you wanting to be a photographer and and moving out west and all that? Uh. Yes and no. My yeah. parents were going through a divorce at the time, so yeah. my freshman year they got divorced, mm. and my was dad. Was that hard for you? Not particularly. No, yeah. we we as a family like it was coming. Yeah, and it should have happened a lot sooner. Um, I was already was going, during my right? freshman yeah. year, so I had a younger. I still have a younger brother who was young then. He was like, I think it was eight or nine. Yeah, and that was the big concern. Like. Where was he going to go? Taking care of him, yeah. Yeah, and he ended up coming out here, living with my sister for a while, and then um, ended up living with my dad in Colorado. My dad resettled in Colorado, got remarried. My mom resettled in Atlanta and got remarried. Mm. So everybody, so the family started, was all over. Everybody was all over. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't, I want to, don't want to say I struggled. I just, I think I went through what everybody in the freelance world goes through. Like, yeah. where is the job going to come right. from? Anyway. So when did you get your first big break or like your first gig out here when that phone finally rang? Well, the first real big break was um, I was freelancing around just trying to get a credential wherever I could to shoot mm-hmm. Laker games, Kings games, Dodger games, whatever. That was still like your goal. Of like, how am I getting to yeah. these teams? Yeah. yeah. And and back then it was easier to get credentials with, well, yeah. with smaller publications. Sneak onto the field back then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> anyway, I was shooting. I was freelancing around shooting laker games at the forum and i had become friends with people at the forum through my assisting days mm-hmm. and uh 
Um, you know, of course, the Kings played there. Yep. Lakers played there. And then they had other sports like uh, volleyball. They had tennis. They had indoor soccer. Wow. Uh, rollerblade, hockey, you know, all kind of stuff. So, you know, they liked me down there. And um, the Laker PR guy, I remember, it was like November, beginning of the season, November 82, between mm-hmm. the 82, 83 season. Yeah. And he called me over. He said, Andy, uh, you realize we got the All-Star, the NBA All-Star games coming in here in February? And I said, yeah, I'd heard about that. And he says, he says, well, you know, I know this guy at the NBA office. Maybe, you know, you go talk to him and maybe they need a photographer. You never know. Yeah. All right. And it gives me the guy's name. The guy's name is Porter McKinnon. And he ended up being like the only, the guy, the only person at the NBA who did anything in publishing and they had like one publication. Right. <laughs> they, it was called NBA Today. It was like a tabloid thing. Yeah. Came out like, I think it came out once a week or something. Right. So I write to this guy, you know, there's no email, of course. Right. And uh, I say, hey, you know, I'm going to be coming home, to visit some family at Thanksgiving. And I come in and meet with you. Uh, you know about the all-star game and he he wrote me back and he said yeah sure kid come in i'm gonna be in the office on the friday of thanksgiving weekend who who does that so i go up there and and i you know take my little portfolio yeah and i don't know this guy and he was sitting across the desk and he looks at me and i you know it was a little wild looking back in those days and uh, definitely looking young he looks at my stuff and he says so he says, your stuff is nice, and I had a couple of things published in some minor publications. Yeah. And he says, um, so let me understand something. You live in L.A.? And I said, yeah. He says, uh, and so we don't have to travel you, right? And we don't have to feed you, and we don't really have to pay you very much. Right. And he's like th- talking out, thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, we haven't really thought about it, having an official photographer. We never had an official photographer. But, you know, your stuff is good. And you seem like, you know, you're eager. And so, Why yeah, not? we'll hire yeah. you. So next thing I know, I'm standing out there, literally mid-court. It's an all-star game, 83 all-star yeah, I mean, game, which was just a game. Yeah. Just the game. It was no weekend. It was yeah. just a game on yeah. Sunday afternoon at noon. And I'm standing center court. Marvin Gaye is like 10 feet away singing the anthem. Yeah, I mean, that's. That's yeah. probably the most iconic yeah. moment of that All-Star game. Right. And, you know, the West All-Stars are over here. The East All-Stars are over there. And I'm, I'm standing there taking photos. I'm literally thinking, this is really cool. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. and you know what? I kind of belong here. Yeah. Like, I worked hard to get here. I didn't know it was in front of me, but it was a pretty cool place to be. Yeah, I mean, to be in that moment and feel secure yeah. in yourself and your ability and and. Were you nervous at all, or, or you just really felt at home? Um, I wasn't really nervous. I was kind of jacked up because I had so much to do. They kept they just it was just me. I had no assistant. Right. There was no other right. photographer. There, there were so many players. Like I get, so I, you know, the game was at noon. Mm-hmm. I got there probably six o'clock in the morning. I yeah. had to get my strobes ready and everything. And you know, one thing after the, oh, did we tell you we have to do team pictures? I'm like, uh, no. Where are we doing that? Oh, we'll just do it in the hallway over here. And that's how we did it. They they pulled out this like plastic curtain. They put some folding chairs down. Luckily, yeah. I had had brought some lights. Right. Because I had the foresight to think I had there was to no bring, lighting. Yeah. It was no I mean, fluorescent light. Yeah. So I brought two strobes with umbrellas. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, even why it was like an afterthought. I stuck yeah. them in the car. Because no one told me I, you know, right? And I think we banged that out, and then uh, 
there's all kinds of other stuff going the MVP presentation and this meet and greet. Right, and this, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I did it. And I actually came away with some pictures I still am pretty proud of no, to this sure. day. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's kind of like your yeah. first work in some way. Yeah. Did that, uh, that Marvin performance, did you guys know in the moment how special and, and iconic that was? Or well, we, we all was knew. It like to hear that live? We all knew like about three and a half to four minutes in that this, first of all, is not ending anytime soon. Yeah. And when they saw the guys bopping around, they're looking at each other and the fans are clapping and, you know, th- I had never heard anything like that. Yeah. You know, and it was amazing. No, was before I came, I, I rewatched that on YouTube. Yeah. I encourage anyone uh, who hasn't seen it uh, to give it a look. It, it's it's incredible. I think it was voted the most iconic rendition of the yeah. of the anthem yeah. of all time. Number one. Yeah. yeah. So how does that gig at the '83 All Star Game lead to something with the Lakers? Well, it actually led more to working with the NBA because with the league. With the league. So yeah. the Lakers and the Forum and Kings had one photographer. They had a longtime photographer who had been there since the beginning. He was mm-hmm. their house guy. I didn't want to step on his toes or anything like that. So my my sort of um, pathway in was with the NBA. I became very good friends with a guy named Terry Lyons who worked in the PR department at the NBA. Yeah. And he was charged with anything that was photo-related. There really weren't any licensees that looked for photos. There were, right. There was one trading card company. There was one poster company. The game was more simple back then. Yeah. <laughs> so Terry would call and he'd say, hey, you know, um, Starline, you know, the, the card company at the right. time, you know, they needed these guys. And yeah. so I would literally, like, put a package together this before FedEx yeah. and bring it to the mail, you know, to the uh, post office and mail it to him. Right. You know, I think Express Mail had just started. It was crazy. And, you know, sending original film, you know, because it, it mm-hmm. was on film in those days. You didn't duplicate So is the league and, having you kind of travel around and shoot a bunch of different teams? Yeah. So the, the so the agreement we had was that they would get me credentials. Right. And I would schlep to, you know, wherever, mm-hmm. you know, Phoenix, Utah, right, Portland, yeah. Seattle, Miami, wherever it was, you know, three, uh, two Texas teams at the time. And uh, they would... Um, in exchange for the credential and the ability to sell my photos mm-hmm. to anyone I wanted to, mm-hmm. they would get the f- like basically first look at what I needed, okay, of what they needed for whatever need they had. They would have a first look, and yeah. it was a great relationship because I was able to build up a library of an archive of photos. Plus, I was getting my stuff published, yeah, getting to meet at different teams, yeah, at different arenas, yeah, like, and I was experience. getting to yeah. be known as a as a sort of a guy who. You know, the strobe technique of shooting on strobes was very specialized then. It still is, but yeah. there were very few of us that were doing it in the country. There's probably, at that time, in the mid-'80s, there was probably maybe six of us in the country that were doing it as freelancers. Sports yeah. Illustrated was doing it as their regular way of doing business. Right. But in, in, in individual markets, there were only a handful of us that were doing it. Did you have a team at that point, or...? Who were you a fan of? You know, I, I, you know, I was, look, I cut my teeth with the Showtime Lakers. So, <laughs> you know, I have to say that I was, I was a fan, but I wasn't, I wasn't immersed in, in the hysteria of it all. I right. had my job to do. Right. I, I knew at the time that this was pretty cool and special yeah. to be with this team and, yeah. and go to Boston Garden and win the championship, you know, right. on their floor in 85. And that led to the, the, one of the benchmarks in my career which was to get a cover of sports illustrated right i had sent these benchmarks while i was in school you know the first one was to 
get a, a picture in Sports Illustrated, right? Then right? the second was to ha- get an actual Sports Illustrated assignment right. to ha- get published, right? And then the next one was to get a cover. Once you get a cover, that's like you're that's you, the you're, holy grail, right? Well, there. yeah, you've gone from like B movies, you know, yeah. to like yeah. And they can't take that. No one can take that away. Your name will always be on that cover. For sure. And it was huge. I mean, yeah. that was that was a, a moment in time that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, the magazine came out on Tuesday mornings. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Pasadena. And um, there was a newsstand on Cahuenga and Sunset called uh, uh, Globe News or World News or something like that. Yeah. And I it was in my car at four o'clock in the morning on that Tuesday morning, waiting for the truck to come to literally drop the magazines in front. I mean, like you see in movies, right. you know, just right and, there. And I was down. like right there yeah. when it happened, and the guy opened it up, and I'm like, I'm buy twenty of those. Yeah, and he goes, why? I said, that's my picture, you know. <laughs> and it was it was a great moment. No, it's amazing. I mean, I want to yeah. I want to stay on Showtime for a bit. I think yeah. obviously that's what our whole yeah. collection is about, and really about the whole story that we're trying to tell. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the Showtime ball was already rolling a little bit when you came mm-hmm. in. In 83, obviously, Magic was drafted in 80. Uh, they had yeah. the first title his rookie year. What was it like? I mean, what do you remember most about that time and, and really what made that team and that era so so special? Yeah, well, it was it was magical. I mean, I hate to use that cliche, but the electricity in the building at the Forum was amazing. Yeah. You know, Magic was, was so welcoming. Um, basically, my rookie year i would say was his second year mm-hmm. right so he you know he he was super welcoming and and gregarious and nice yeah and pat riley and and jerry west at the time and i was always afraid of jerry west until i actually met him <laughs> and even you know the bus family and the courtside season ticket holders are still my friends 40 right. years in the same people Just sitting courtside it yeah it was really an incredible i guess it was just a great you know convergence of being in the right place at the right time but also mm-hmm. having the goods to produce yeah. you know on a regular basis yeah. and being dependable yeah and having the integrity and all the things i i stress now to young photographers what you have to have talent alone isn't gonna is not gonna get you very far yeah very few people in you know in our profession that if people don't want to work with you you could be the greatest photographer ever lived, right. but you know, they, they, you know, they don't yeah. want to be around you. You're not going to have a career. Yeah. Do so you feel like their success kind of inspired you to take your routines and habits and, and preparation mm-hmm. more seriously. Oh, all, for like, sure. How did that change? Yeah. I mean, look, I, my dad was, was, had a great work ethic. You know, he got up, went to work every single day at the house, six thirty in the morning and seeing patients all day long. And, you know, it's tireless, had A-plus personality. But then I saw, like, Magic, for example. You know, that team was so good. Those teams, were, they just yeah. were blowing teams out. But yeah. he would never take a, a game off. He would never mm. take a quarter off or even a play. I mean, this guy played hard all the time. Yeah. And, you know, that was inspiring to me. That it could be a blowout in the fourth quarter. Right, and he's still, and out, there, he's still yeah. out there until Pat pulled him out. But then... You know, I still had my job to do, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to, just because he's sitting on the bench. Yeah. And he's still, like, sort of coaching from the bench, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was crazy. But um, I, that work ethic, that, like, sort of lunch pail mentality it stayed, stayed yeah. with me. And, of course, that extended to when I met Kobe and just took it to the next level with yeah. him. 
yeah. when you're there and, and kind of photographing the whole game like that, how much are you paying attention to kind of the score and the context and like, are your kind of emotions and energy yeah. really flowing with the game? Or are you just kind of locked in and regardless of what's going on on the court? Well, I learned very early that I can't be a fan. Right. I mean, I can't, if I'm a fan and I'm watching what's going on, I'm not doing my You're job. Get distracted. And I learned that, like probably my first six months into the job that I just can't, I can't, I can't be at a football game and watch, you know, Marcus Allen break this incredible, you know, play for a touchdown and just be standing there watching it. Might as well be up in the crowd or I might as well be on my couch watching it on TV. Yeah. And that's what, that's not what people are paying me to do. Yeah. So I can be a fan um, when I get home, right. you know, and, and watch, watch the highlights, the highlights or, yeah. or, um, well, I, a lot of times when I used to look through my film, I would get excited and like, remember the, that moment in the game and how cool that was and all that. But, um, I have, I have to stay very locked in when I work and yeah. I, it, I kind of got this, honestly, this, this sort of reputation as being very aloof. Mm. because photographers you know, used to be packed in on the baselines right. and, so crammed, and yeah. photographers like to talk to each other and kibitz and complain about the referee in the way. And, and I had friends, photographer friends who would actually like, like complain during the game. Like they'd be yelling <laughs> at the refs and stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yeah. I, I just was very tunnel visioned Yeah, and people took that, I don't care how they took it, but they, you know, I know that people took it as being very aloof and arrogant, whatever. Yeah. I don't care. Do you game plan like specific shots or players or like things that you know you're going to get a one and then two shooting kind of magic in the showtime era? Was that harder to capture at all because of that, like a running gun style and kind of the flashiness of maybe not knowing like yeah. where the pass was going to go or something? Oh, that's a, that was the biggest learning curve. You know, I, the technique that I use with shooting with these big strobes, these big flashes, yeah. that I can only shoot one shot every four seconds. Wow. So there's no like 12 frame, you know, right. in a boop, second boop, boop, motor yeah. drive, and yeah. then you pick that shot out of the somewhere in that sequence. So I have to be incredibly disciplined and learn the games. I, you know, I have to learn Kareem's setup to the skyhook because right. there's a moment in the skyhook where it's this beautiful apex of where the ball is just leaving the hand. Mm-hmm. You shoot it too early, it doesn't look so you great. Don't get that. Yeah. Magic, same thing. I mean, I got burned many, many times with Magic coming down the court full speed. <laughs> he's got Coop on one side. He's got Byron or yeah. Worthy or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, he's doing 19 moves before he gets to half court. Yeah. And I'm just waiting. Instinctively, I had to just learn, like, at some point he's going to – make a move with the ball, mm-hmm. that's the that's when I have to shoot. Yeah. And you only learn by experience. Yeah. Um, but you have to keep all of that in your head as the as it's happening. You Absolutely. know, Kobe was the same way. You know, yeah. Kobe was a dunk machine yeah. as a young pre Mamba. Oh my God, yeah. But yeah, I never knew what kind of dunk he was going right. to do on a breakaway. 360, is he going to cock it back? I is mean, he, right. yeah. And yeah, you get burned once, you know, but hopefully I got more... Yeah. Less burn than I got yeah. burned. Speaking of getting burned, I'm so fascinated. Obviously, like you've captured so many incredible moments. How do you kind of deal with the moments that you might miss? Or like, are there any kind of memories for you of, of things you didn't get that still kind of weigh just as heavily? Oh, yeah. I mean, I miss so much in my career. I mean, there's a couple of moments that will always stay with me. Um, 
the one that I always point to, and I have no qualms about pointing to it, is uh, when Vince Carter dunked over that French dude. Frederick Weiss? Yeah, yeah. In, in the 2000 Olympics. Probably yeah. the greatest dunk in, in Olympic history. Best in-game dunk probably of all time, yeah. people say. It, yeah. yeah, I would probably agree with that. Yeah. And I, I was right there, and I pushed the shutter button <laughs> and timed it right, and it was completely out of focus. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, and, if you watch that play, it's like they had gotten the steal off the yeah. inbound pass. So I'm sure that you weren't totally prepared for them to get the ball no, back. No, right there. but there's no excuse. I mean, right, the, right. The, if there was an excuse, the excuse would be that I was using equipment I shouldn't have been using. Right. And this is something I drill into young photographers and students: don't ever use something that you have not tested right. or used before, yeah. right? unless it's an absolute emergency. You, yeah. you know, you know, something breaks and you just have to pick up something or whatever. But I was trying out some Canon stuff. Canon was had a big presence at the Olympics that year, and they had they had made these lenses that shoot in low light and all this. It's just no excuse. Right. I just right. never should have done it. Yeah, and it happened early in the tournament. And it just stuck with me. It was like for weeks. I mean, yeah. for years. I mean, it's still with me. You pretty hard on yourself with like missing those moments or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the deal. If it's a technical issue, mm -hmm. strobes don't go off or it's an environmental issue. So referees in the way, guy's arm is in the way on a right. dunk. Something out of your control. Player, you know, referees get in the way a lot. Yeah. And, uh, or it just doesn't set up right, doesn't look right, whatever. Um, or, again, something fails. You know, sometimes cameras just don't work. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the strobes don't go off. Nine and a half times out of ten, that's out of my control. Yeah. Now, if I hadn't checked the strobes before the game and they don't work, that that's becomes my problem. Yeah. Where I draw the line is when I get distracted. Yeah. And if I'm distracted and I miss something, that's when I kick myself. Yeah. Okay? And that happened... Uh, I think it was about 10 years ago and um, there was a Blake Griffin dunk and I was distracted and I missed it. And ever since that moment, I, I now, um, I just vowed that, that would never happen again. Yeah. I learned from it and you only learn by failure. Yeah. Which well, that's is, all, yeah, that's all we can do. It's I think. a cliche, but it doesn't make the pain of it any any easier. Yeah, I mean, before we started Mad Happy, like we had another a clothing company that ultimately like failed, and I mm. think it's really those lessons that allowed us to start mm. Mad Happy. And even yeah. just to hear you say uh, not stressing over things that are out of your control, you know, I think that's such a big thing for yeah. mental health and really so many people getting really stressed and, and anxious about what other people think about you or, yeah. or what someone else might do. Right. And like yeah. all these things that mm -hmm. you really can't control and that it's not, not useful to really spend energy on. A hundred percent. Totally yeah. agree. I mean, I, I can only control what I can control yeah. and I can, but I can control how I react to stuff too. And, uh, that's, I've had to learn, you know, in my personal life mostly. Yeah. Um, but also in my business life because, you know, in business, in any business, there's expectations of other people that they're going to respond. They're going to react in a certain way. They're going to reciprocate. They're going right. to, we and, make up already of what's going to happen right. in our heads. Yeah. And then, you know, not taking it personally when all that stuff doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, that, that was, that's been my biggest sort of hurdle in my whole career. It's just not like, taking, yeah. not taking that stuff personally. Like, it's yeah. not a personal affront when somebody just doesn't return an email or, yeah. or a phone call or right. says, oh, yeah, I'll follow up, and they never do. Yeah. Something um, I tell myself is, like, 
I'm not that special and I'm not that important to where I think a lot of us are in the mindset of like, it's all about me and, and, oh, this person isn't answering because of X, Y, Z and like to just really step back and they have a whole other life and it probably has nothing to do with me. That's true. But I also, that's all true, but I also have a, uh, a bullshit meter, honestly, and I have zero tolerance for it at this point in my career, my life, there's a lot of that. (laughs) Right. But I can't, at this point I can't, you know, into my career and my age, I just don't have the time for this anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, if, if you don't care, move aside, I'll find somebody who does. Right. You don't want to work with me? Okay. Yeah. Just be upfront about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because you want everyone to like you. You want everyone to work with you. Naturally. You want people to buy into your ideas. You know, I'm, I've been launching two businesses now, um, Legends of Sport and Type Zero Collectibles. Um, you know, we tried to launch both of these during the pandemic, yeah. me and my partners. I mean, it's insane, right? Yeah. But look, you know, we couldn't control the pandemic. Yeah, uh, exactly. And now we're making up for that lost time, which everybody lost that time. Yeah. But there were silver linings about the pandemic. It, you know, I was able to really get the podcast to a point where we now are on a platform, on the iHeart platform, mm. that we probably wouldn't have gotten to. Yeah. If we had piddled along with the other two that we were on. Yeah. Or we wouldn't have had the guests that we were able to attract during the pandemic. Right. I mean, I was talking to people like, you know, Sue Bird and Kevin Love. Right. You've never gotten access I mean, to these people. Yeah. I mean, they, they would were have been way too busy. Amazing. Yeah. And then the bubble conversations and the fact that I was in the bubble when all the social justice stuff came to really, you know, came to the, the level it came to. Yeah. During the bubble when the league shut down for those two days and I had to educate myself as to what is this, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Like what does black lives matter really mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a white guy working around African Americans my entire career. I don't really understand what black lives matter means. So I had to educate myself. I reached out to people like a Ton Thomas, amazing activist, former NBA player, my dear, dear friend, Mark Spears, an amazing Mm -hmm. writer, I had to learn, first of all, enough that I could have a conversation about it yeah. and not sound like an idiot on my own podcast. Yeah. And so that was that was actually, you know, a gift of the pandemic was or, that it, it got me to another level of um, compassion, yeah. of understanding what goes on in our country, what's been going on for so long. Yeah. And what I can how I can lend a voice to it. Yeah, I mean, I can one be of the part big, of the solution. Uh, yeah, one of the big takeaways for me of the pandemic is really how much it brought mental health to the forefront of, mm-hmm. of so many people's lives. And for yeah. me, it was really a silver lining of it, of how many people didn't have all these outlets that we don't even realize that we're using on a daily basis of going yeah. out to restaurants or to work or yeah. to the bars or concerts or sporting events and things like that. And yeah. really, like, everyone having to collectively sit with our feelings and really face them and, like, having yeah. to learn these things about ourselves and having those conversations that we're putting off because we're too tired of when we get home from work and all yeah. these things. And I feel like obviously it was out of all of our controls, but has really in some regards like changed the world for the best. In some yeah, ways. for sure. I mean, as you're saying all that, I'm thinking about my mental health in the bubble. I was yeah. in the bubble for 53 days. Yeah. The first seven, I was in quarantine 23 hours and 45 minutes a day Right. Wow. in my room, sealed up, not able to open a window 15 minutes I was allowed out of my room. I could only go down the hall to get tested and come back. 
and the meals were delivered outside. I mean, literally right. like being in prison. Yeah. And I was in the middle of Florida. It was a heat wave. It right. was nightmare. Were you starting to go a stir crazy or like how did you um, kind of stay sane? Well, the room was, I think, was 10 by maybe, maybe it was 10 by 12. Yeah. I don't know if it was that big. Yeah. Players I, probably had rooms that were slightly bigger. A little bigger, bit bigger. Yeah. But they, you know, they had a quarantine too. Oh, of course. they got there. Yeah. And then all of this stuff came down the night before I'm coming out of quarantine. Like I was supposed to work that next day, like do my first games. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know, like, am I coming out of quarantine and I'm going to get on a plane and go home? Right. I mean, like, this whole right. thing is right. like over. It's going to happen. We didn't yeah. know. No yeah. one knew. So I was, um, I was going a little stir crazy. You know, yeah. thank God we had FaceTime. I could talk to my my wife and my kids. Mm-hmm. I brought a lot of books with me. I brought some ex- exercise stuff. Yeah. And then the social justice stuff came down. You know, George Floyd reaction to his murder, and I, I keep seeing this guy Etan Thomas on. MSNBC. Yeah. And so I, I literally looked him up on Instagram. I DM'd him. Wow. I'm like, you don't know me. I don't know you. But I took your picture and I sent him a couple of pictures I had found on Getty that wow. I had shot of him yeah. when he played for Washington. I said, I said, I, I, I ordered, I just ordered his book from Amazon. And yeah. thank God we had Amazon yeah. in the bubble. And that was really a godsend because it gave me more, more of a purpose. Yeah. Was there any sort of like mental health conversation in the bubble, either? from the league or other people that you were in there with of like people really opening up and, and kind of talking about their experiences in there? You know, it's interesting because the league was very cognizant and very um, forthcoming about, look, you have, we all know this is a difficult scenario. Right. You know, once in a lifetime situation, yeah. we're all in this together, yeah. but everybody has their struggles and, and there are resources there to reach out to. There was a hotline, anonymous hotline. I tended to keep all of that to myself. Honestly, yeah. I didn't feel the, the real need to reach out to the hotline. I didn't really talk to my colleagues about it. Yeah. Honestly, in the workplace, I kind of like to get in and get out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Set some boundaries there. Yeah, I do. And I, I just felt like I had to just, just suck it up and do it. We're all in it together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was the way I handled it. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't the healthiest way to handle it. I do know that people were talking to the mental health resources quite frequently. And some friends shared about the fact they were doing that. I didn't do that. Yeah. So no, even I remember some players and, and, teams even like yeah. really speaking up about it like this is yeah this is too hard for us and yeah our, our priorities are our mental health and our families yeah. and our kids and like it, sure. it's with everything else that was going on it was obviously bigger than basketball at that time yeah i mean let's hope we never have to go through that again i yeah. think the nba did an amazing job i really yeah. do they prepared all the covid protocols all the preparation yeah um and the lakers won it all so lakers won it yeah. you know in front of nobody <laughs> yeah, which was really weird yeah. and yeah we have stories to tell for the rest of our lives yeah how yeah. crazy the yeah. season that was to to back it up a little bit i want to talk about the dream team in 92 and and your time with them in barcelona mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. probably the most iconic team of all time right yeah. arguably the greatest collection of talent ever mm-hmm. um what was that experience like and just the energy of being around all those guys, did you realize in the moment how global it was? I mean, I know there's that shot of Michael with the huge <laughs> poster of him, and it was kind of the moment where basketball became like a global yeah. thing. I mean, it was amazing. Being First of all, I was the only photographer embedded with them for the full seven weeks from the first day of from training camp finish. in San Diego 
through the gold medal in, in Barcelona. My good friend Nat Butler, who's kind of my cohort on the East Coast, mm-hmm. he was there for a lot of it, but I was there the entire time, yeah. beginning to end. And I remember being in San Diego and being in the room with all these guys and thinking, wow, this you know, this is an all-star game, an all-star team on steroids. I mean, this is, <laughs> you're not going to get it better than no, this. This is as good as it gets. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. And I... I took it very seriously. I probably took it too seriously. I mean, you know, I felt like I was on call 24 hours a day, Mm. which kind of came to fruition when we were in Barcelona and Charles Barkley would decide to like literally go out to the Rombos at two o'clock in the morning (laughs) and uh, I'd have to tag along with him, you know, but um, in retrospect, I I wish I had enjoyed it more Mm. and I don't want to say, but see, that's the thing. I don't want to say that I didn't take it. I wish I didn't take it so seriously. Yeah. I always take my work seriously. Yeah. But I get obsessed to the point where I can't let go of it and just, you know, have a couple of beers. It's just like, okay, I'm off the clock. Yeah. And I, I, I never felt like, I was off the clock on, yeah, that, on that gig. For me, it's like being, having the ability to be present. And yeah. Like really being in this moment and yeah. not letting our minds distract of, of what do I have to do next or what's yeah. coming up tomorrow and kind of letting those thoughts creep in and, and really take us out of the current moment. Well, you know, the, that's the story of being a workaholic yeah. and having a, an obsession that that could never be really fulfilled. You know, yeah. it just has, you just keep going and going and going. Yeah. I mean, Kobe and I had this conversation about just being crazy obsessed. You know, he saw that in me. I saw that obviously in him. That's what bonded us together. We never talked about it until 20 years later when we did our book together and we realized, I mean, he knew it. I mean, yeah. he, 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 he told me, I asked him, I said, why, you know, why did you think it, it's okay? I mean, why did you want to do this book with me? He goes, so I knew you were just as crazy obsessed with what you do than what would I do. I mean, we're from the same mind. We had the same obsessive mind. Yeah. And, uh, I thought I'd always beat you to the arena, but every time I got there, you were there first. Yeah. <laughs> and we joked, and it was it was a great revelation to me that like he actually noticed stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, he he seems like one of the most detail oriented oh, yeah. and, and observant people. Of even you having no idea that he was maybe even paying any attention oh, yeah. to you, and he was probably noticing you every single day. Yeah, a million percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when you're on those trips, and and as your career is evolving creatively are you able to take more like liberties and really have like visions and and give direction or are you more following the lead of uh maybe a publication or the league or like them telling you to get certain things it's a little bit of both but the nba mostly would would kind of give me um a carte blanche you Mm -hmm. know and to i remember in the early days um when i first started I was never satisfied like just going to a city and doing the game and going to the next city. I always wanted to do something else. Yeah. So if I was in, let's say, San Antonio. Right. And let's say I had, you know, there was an off day between, you know, game on Wednesday and a game Friday. Well, that off day, I, 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 I didn't want to be sitting around the hotel or sightseeing. I want to be doing something. So I would beg David Robinson to go do a photo shoot at the Alamo, right. you know, and in those days, you, you, all you had to do is either ask the guy directly or you went to the PR guy who I was friends with all of them. Yeah. And the guy would either say yes or no. And right. most of the time they would say yes. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I, and I actually did that with David Robinson yeah. on an off day and it turned out to be an iconic photo that iconic still used today. Yeah. I had an experience with Michael Jordan and it was a rookie year. Yeah. And I was kind of following him around when he was 
doing the tour, you know, the Bulls were playing on the West Coast. So I shot him in Phoenix and I went to Salt Lake City and I remember I was in Portland and the next game I think was in, in um, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a game day. <laughs> and uh I called the PR guy, Tim Hallam. I said, Tim, I said it was in the morning, it was like ten o'clock. Right. And I said, Tim, I, I have this this like little meeting room that I could have access to and it all it would take for Michael is just to come in and with his jersey on and, and I'll talk to the equipment guy about getting his jersey before, you know, they leave for shoot around. Right. And you just sit there for literally ten seconds. Can I can I just get him for a portrait? And he goes, you, you're, you know, you're crazy, right? I said, yeah. I said, but will you ask him? And he said, yeah, I'll call you back in, the, in my room. Phone rings 10 minutes later. Michael's coming right down. <laughs> I'm like, what? I wasn't ready, obviously, yet. He goes, he, he goes yeah, he's going he's gonna to come down. He's going to have breakfast. going to come down. You got your 10 seconds. Yeah. So I called the equipment guy, gets the jersey. And it was a very simple you know, white backdrop with one light. And he's got the, ta- I brought a towel. He's got a towel around his neck. Yeah. Boom, that was it. Yeah. He was in and out probably literally in two minutes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so inspiring, like as a creative myself, just to hear about your experience thinking so freely and, and pushing boundaries and having opportunities yeah. that everything was right there as long as you were willing to be proactive and take the initiative and yeah. go and get it just because all this stuff was so new at the time it seemed no it's true i mean i'm thinking of another crazy shoot sports illustrated assigned me to shoot charles barkley was just traded to phoenix right right so it was a huge story yeah so they said and this is the direction they give me they said go to phoenix get a picture of charles that says something about being in phoenix you know something phoenix so i'm thinking okay cactus right. you know right. so of course i asked the pr lady julie julie five my great friend she says she said, I'm not even going to ask him that because I know he's going to say no. Like, I wanted to take him after practice. You know, it's not that far away that right. you could go find go some cactus. Desert, yeah. And I already actually had done that with somebody from the Cardinals, and the uh-huh. Phoenix, the, the, the uh, football team. Yeah. I took the quarterback up to, and he was in full quarterback's, you know, gear yeah. out to cactus. It was kind of cool. Yeah. So I want to do the same thing. No, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't leave the building. Right, that was the answer. Mm-hmm. And Julie said, "Andy, you got to figure out something to do in the building right. um, tomorrow at practice." Right. So I, you know, what's a, I, nothing says Phoenix in the building. No. So um, I'm, <laughs> I get down there. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Right. They they let me shoot practice, so it's like his first practice with the team. So I have like that kind of stuff, but right. nothing that says Phoenix. Right. And uh, I'm walking through the training room which in back in the day you could do, I could do. And there's Charles in in the hot tub and there's a little rubber ducky. Like somebody put a rubber ducky at next to the hot tub. And I'm looking at it and I, and I said, Charles, can you just stay there for a minute? And he, and he looks, yeah, okay. And I bring my camera back. It was just a little flash on camera. And I said, you mind just holding the rubber ducky? I had no idea. I mean, <laughs> it meant nothing. Right. It's not Phoenix I even at went out yeah. and bought like fake, like, Rubber cactuses, right, and I was right. going to put them some. I don't know what I was doing. Props, yeah. And that's the picture they ran. Right. The Charles with the rubber ducky. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that that that's his essence, obviously. I, and, you know, we still joke about it. You know, I see him, and, he, you know, he calls me rubber ducky guy. You know, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, being able to witness, like, so many great teams, all-time players, championship teams, what do you think it is that really 
makes these guys successful and really so special? Well, I, I got to tell you, I uh, I always talk about the sixth gear, mm-hmm. right? So I learned how to drive a car on a stick shift. Yeah. And uh, when I moved out to California, my first car was a little Volkswagen, and um, I think it had it had five gears, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew stick shift had five gears. Right. Well, one day, a friend of mine borrowed his dad's Porsche. And it had six gears. And I'm looking at the, the stick shift thing, and there's a six on it. I'm like, what the hell is a six gear? Yeah. Oh, he goes, that's the gear that, you know, you're going to get a ticket when you're in that gear. <laughs> like, okay. And you know how they, they just are like rockets on the freeway. So I always equated players, athletes, and even coaches at that level with having a sixth gear, you know, mm-hmm. just going one step above, you know, you have to be great to get in the NBA, right? There's only yeah. what, 400 players in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. It's like one tenth of one hundredth of a percent or whatever of, of, bas- of basketball players in this country end up in the NBA. It was like some minuscule amount, mm-hmm. like this is literally like winning the lottery, yeah. the odds, right? So to get in the NBA, you have to be, you have to be pretty darn good. But to get to to that level of to be considered one of the greats, one of the icons of the game, I've been blessed to have been able to document. They just have to be on that next level. They have to have that sixth, maybe seventh gear. I don't know. Yeah. Because they're just that much better than the guys that they play with or play against. Do you feel like in, in you know, witnessing people like Michael and, and Kobe and LeBron that the sixth gear is kind of – something similar for all of them or do they all kind of get there in different ways? Um, I think this, the skill, they all have different skills, yeah. you know, like Dennis Rodman's sixth gear was different than the magics, you know, totally. but, um, but their mental preparation and um, drive and their competitiveness, relentlessness, all the, basically all the pillars of the Mamba mentality, quite frankly. Yeah. Everyone, they have to possess every one of those. Yeah. And, and it, all in their individual way, of right. course, and the competitiveness. And, uh, you know, Kobe embodied all of that in mm-hmm. one person. And that's why we did our book, because he wanted to really tell in his words what the Mamba mentality meant to him. What did yeah. it mean? Yeah. You know, the four pillars of the Mamba mentality are obsession. You have to be obsessed with what you do curiosity always be curious always wanting to get better learning from other people seeking out mentors mm-hmm. relentlessness just never stopping never settling for being this good always getting to the next level yeah um, and then the next level past that and strength just being able to overcome mental obstacles yeah. physical obstacles right. um, anything that's in your way being able to overcome that yeah. and he you know we can spend hours talking about each oh, of one course. of those pillars. Yeah. Thinking back to kind of the Lakers organization, the last three decades, uh, thinking about like the Showtime era and then kind of the Kobe and Shaq era. What do you notice in terms of similarities, differences? Like how how did they each get to the greatness that they got to maybe in, in different ways? Well, the, first of all, the talent has to be there. Yeah. But the... Um, the support from the organization has to be there because mm-hmm. they both those organizations were built by Jerry West, yeah. his vision, yeah. and also you know with Doctor Buss's uh, blessing and with support, his, yeah. his support, and also you know Doctor Buss kind of demanded that 
those those teams be as great as they were. Mm-hmm. You know, he wouldn't settle for anything. There's no else. other option, yeah. Right. And then um, let's not forget the coach. You know, the coach has to really be, you know, the captain of the ship. You know, cliche, but yeah. You know, Pat Riley was the perfect coach for Showtime. Mm-hmm. Bill Jackson was the perfect coach for Kobe and Shaq. Yeah. And uh, I can't really think of any other coaches that would have been, would have fit with either of those eras, you know. No. I don't know if Phil could have, well, Phil probably could have coached. They probably could have been interchangeable, actually. You think? Phil could have, probably could have coached the Showtime Lakers, and, and Pat could have coached Kobe and Shaq. Yeah. yeah. Phil could have gotten magic to uh, to meditate. Uh yeah, probably easier than, than he got Shaq to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you ever sit in on any of those meditations? No, that was always super private. Yeah, um, just with the team only. Just with the team. Um, there was some some areas that, of the inner sanctum that were off limits. So mm-hmm. the meditation sessions, the film sessions that he would do, mm-hmm. they were legendary, but uh, I was never privy to those, unfortunately. Yeah. I would have loved to. But, you know, everything else was, was yeah. available and open to me. I have to really shout out my buddy Gary Vitti, longtime trainer. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, because without Gary's sort of get you know say-so and green light, I would have never been allowed in the training room. Yeah. Because that was his domain. And that's where a lot of my relationships were forged. A lot of my pictures were, best pictures were taken yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, that isn't the case now with, with this particular era of Lakers, but right. I'm glad I had it during that, you know, 32, 33 year period. Yeah. How has, uh, like the access changed for you? I know that they don't allow media like in the locker room yeah. anymore, right? Yeah. Well, I was never considered media right. until this era. Right. <laughs> so th- that's how it's changed. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's just more buttoned up right? You know, and I respect it. Things change, things evolve. Yeah. New people come in. Yeah. Just the way it is. Especially with uh, like the rise of social media and things like that. It's almost like these players are kind of the ones in control of that access. Yeah. Because they want to be the ones to kind of own and distribute that content. Yeah. And their own narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I I get it. I understand. I mean, it was was disappointing. A little bit of a revelation um, that took me by surprise. But, uh, you know, it's all good now. Yeah. 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 Doing what you've done at, at the level for so long, I'm wondering, like, creatively, how do you stay inspired? Well, I I, um, I still love what I do. Yeah. And I still, as much as I kind of bitch and moan uh, because of my old age, I still love going to games. Right. I still love being the guy under the basket. Yeah. Uh, I love all the aspects of being at the arena and and kibitzen with the refs and mm-hmm. the season ticket holders that mm-hmm. i know and players and all that um i still love creating a picture through my camera of a moment in time yeah that will mean something it might only mean something for that night yeah you know might end up on instagram and then it's gone the That's next day it. but yeah. my juices are still flowing every time i go to work and that i have to go back to magic for that yeah and then with kobe you know kobe knew that it was time to go when he woke up in the morning one day and didn't want to shoot hoops. Yeah. And that hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah. And I've been very, very grateful and very lucky that the NBA has allowed me to tail back. Yeah. I'm working a lot less than I used to. I'm not mm-hmm. traveling really at all. And that's kind of prolonging my career. Yeah. And I think that they see that too. They yeah. still want me around for some reason. I don't know. So you're mainly just doing like a crypto arena stuff now? I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing basically half the Laker home games and half the Clipper home games. Okay. And then... 
I think I've only traveled once this season, and I think I have one more trip coming up. Mm-hmm. A few more things I wanted to ask you. Um, when you look back on your career, are there maybe three or four shots or maybe a top five games that you have of, of moments? Ooh, that's a great question. Well, it's got to be that number one is is got to be still um, when the Lakers clinched in 85 in Boston Garden mm-hmm. in the finals. Yeah. Because no Laker team had ever done that before, yeah. and that was truly historic. Is that the magic of baby a baby sky? Hook? Yeah, and that yeah. was you know yeah. that was my first SI cover and yeah. all that stuff, and that was just amazing. And then Kobe's last game was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, dropped sixty and incredible. dropped the mic and yeah. bomba out and the whole thing. Yeah, and that was incredible because I was with him all day from early in the morning at his office and really? came up to LA with him and. I mean that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, that was that was unbelievable. Being with the dream team, yeah. you know, probably that whole experience was great, but that gold medal game was pretty pretty mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. And watching, you know, watching them get their medals right. and and I mean, documenting. I wasn't none of watching. Those games were a competitive. Thing. No, but but it was but it was it was so great. I mean, yeah. it was just such a incredible, I don't know, gift as as a photographer to be entrusted with documenting that team. Yeah. You know, that I'm, I'm always grateful for that. What are your top five all time? Top five players. Players. Oh, they have to be ranked by number or, or just interchangeable. Just, just in general, a top five. Well, you know, I got to go with, with magic and Kobe. Yeah. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Um, absolutely. 100%. I've, I've had a, a great relationship with Chris Paul, his whole career, mm-hmm. career and, Wonderful guy, um, you know. Carl Malone was always wow, the mailman. Yeah, I mean, he was he was. I see you got his. He was got his wristband back. Yeah, there, yeah, he was crotchety, and he was he was a pain in the ass sometimes. But yeah. but I loved the guy. I yeah. really did. I loved his game. Spent a good amount of time with him off the court, mm-hmm. which was great. You know, Barkley was amazing, it's incredible, wonderful guy. And, yeah. and you know, we can't forget Michael. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a pretty good five. Yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is your kind of routine like now in terms of prioritizing your mental health, mm-hmm. taking care of yourself, knowing that it was the right time for you to maybe scale back a little bit? Um, how mm-hmm. do you go about that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning to building another business mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point in my life. You know, yeah. Mid-60s, 40-plus years into a career, most people are looking to kind of wean themselves out and go off in the sunset. Yeah, I really want to build this business um legends of sport platform to the point where myself and my partners really have envisioned it since the beginning yeah um as a sports content platform that helps legends you know either shining a light back on them or or pointing to mental health issues Mm. transition from sport from the sport to real life right after Um, after they're done playing yeah giving them marketing opportunities you know through events that we can do all that stuff yeah that's super important you know, this whole NFT craze has really sparked my third company, Type Zero Collectibles, mm-hmm. to sort of pivot towards that. We were kind of going into a more sort of a collectible kind of direction. Now it's more to the NFT kind of direction, and that's right. that's still unfolding. Um, and, you know, the bandwidth is not as uh, as thick <laughs> as it used to be, and my, my patience isn't as much as it used to be, and my yeah. energy is not even close. Yeah. So I've had to prioritize my mental health in terms of, you know, getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm not 
stressing too much. Yeah. Although you know, I'm I'm a chronic stressor. Um, <laughs> well, anyone who's obsessed with yeah. their craft to that degree, I yeah, think for it, sure. Yeah. And you know, I something I don't share very often, but um, I've been a, on the path of recovery for the last twenty, almost twenty one years. That's wow. super important to me. It's a pretty, pretty much the top priority for me. Yeah, is my recovery path because everything kind of <clears throat> comes from that. Yeah. And from sobriety. So I've been you know, sober uh, for over uh, three years. So well, I, I, there you go, my friend. I know the road, God bless uh, you. Not as well as you. Yeah. But. And, you know, my meetings are important. My yeah. connection with my brothers and sisters in the program, yeah. my, my sponsor and therapist. Yeah. Um, all of that became crystal clear to me back when I got into recovery that things weren't working mm-hmm. and that I needed to to change the way I did things yeah. and the way I thought about things. Try someone else's way. <laughs> well, yeah, and that the big guy upstairs, you know, had a plan and yeah. not up to me to screw it up. Yeah. You know, it it's it's been it's been amazing. I mean I've I've made friendships in, in my program that I would never have made in a million years. Yeah. And uh I always say like the first couple of meetings that I went to after I kind of hit my mm-hmm. rock bottom was I didn't know why I felt so comfortable in yeah. the room just completely full of strangers. Why yeah. I felt better there than I did with my best friends or my business partners or my parents. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a scary but also really freeing feeling to yeah. just be so validated and, and for some reason just able to talk so much more freely and yeah. maybe say things that you would never say. And, and yeah, some of my strongest yeah. support systems and relationships are, are from people I've met in program. That's an amazing thing. I mean, yeah. it really is. And, and you know, those, those people listening who are in recovery, um, know what we're talking about Yeah, and maybe us talking about it is shedding light on to people that, that are stuck yeah, and and think that they can't get out of whatever they're involved with. Yeah, whatever the obsession and the urges and whatever it is. Yeah, and there is another way. Yeah, I mean we know it, and uh, but you got to do the work. Yeah, and that work, work is vital. Yeah, well, I'll ask you uh, two questions uh, before we wrap up. We ask yeah. everyone these on the show. Uh, the first is <clears throat> if you could nominate anyone to come on the show who has inspired you or who has a powerful mental health story, uh, who would you nominate? To come on my show or your show? Either, I guess. <laughs> well, you've had uh, so many amazing guests, I guess, that, that you've really heard a you lot. You know, I, I really want to get two people on the show. Yeah. And we've been, we've been lobbying for five years. Yeah. Um, Billie Jean King. Wow. And Michael Phelps. Yeah. And uh, Phelps would be incredible. Sometimes we feel like we're close on one and we're getting close on the other and it goes back and forth. But eventually we'll, we will get them. Yeah, because I'm pretty relentless. Yeah, and so is my producer. No, I think I think Phelps would would yeah. be incredible. No, and I saw Michael in. Um, I actually shot Michael and Kobe years ago in China. Just right. hap- Michael happened to be there when the Lakers were there, and um, I know I know his agent. I you know I know people around him. Right. Blah blah blah. And I saw him. You'll get him. I, I saw him in Las Vegas, and I actually mentioned it. And he goes, "Yeah, talk to my guy." You know, and I reach out to the guy. So we're just waiting. You yeah. know how it goes. Yep. And then Billie Jean, you know, she's such an inspiration. Um, I have three daughters and a mm-hmm. son, so what she's done for women's sports and equality, and we saw all this come to fruition literally today as we speak yeah. with the, you know, the decision made for the U.S. Um, yeah. women's soccer team and mm-hmm. the equal pay and the and the back reparation pay and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, my wife is, is a Title IX director, 
Um, and Billie Jean King literally invented Title IX, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and my wife actually there. works at the school at Cal State LA where Billie Jean King went. Wow. You know, so wow. there's a lot of crossover there. Nice. And uh, I, I've become very good friends with people like Sue Bird, you mm-hmm. know, Lisa Leslie, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tina Thompson, Tamika Catchings. Yeah. I can name so many. Yeah. Ann Myers Drysdale, Nancy Lieberman, all of all of those women, like. I don't want to say oh, but yeah. you know, homage, yeah, Billie Jean King yeah. and what she did and what she struggled to to do. Yeah, so I want to talk to her, and uh, that'll be fun. Yeah, you know, it'll happen. That'd be a great episode. Yeah, um, and lastly, Andy, what makes you mad happy? Ooh, what makes me mad happy? Well, first of all, talking to you has been great, man. Oh, so that's been you. fun. What makes me mad happy really is when I'm able to step back and just. Uh, just kind of see the sun through the clouds, you know, mm-hmm. and like, okay, th- th- today's a good day. All yeah. right. Yeah. It might be a lot of crap on my plate, yeah. <laughs> but it's not really crap. It's actually good stuff that right. I've worked hard to get to. And, yeah. um, and you know, the journey, um, makes me mad happy. Yeah. The, the actual pursuit of where, where I want to get to. And I got a lot left. I mean, I, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of energy, a lot of, um, a little bit of moxie left, I think, in me. Yeah. Uh, relentlessness, all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, my mad happy meter is is pretty high right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and for opening up about your experiences, both personally and professionally. I think thank it's you, an sir. important conversation yeah. to have, and you're a living legend, so yeah. it's awesome. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it, and, and, and best of success to you guys. Thank you. I mean, I think what you're doing is great, and... And the mission of it um, speaks for itself. So it's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, As always, it means the world to us. Thank you for everyone who supported our Lakers drop today. That's super exciting. Uh, It's available through Instagram for the first day and then on our website as well as in our store in L.A. on Melrose. Uh, So make sure to check that out. As always, uh, we are not professionals by any means. And if you need help or are seeking help of any kind, uh, you can visit us at localoptimist.com backslash podcast to get some more information. Uh, And hope everyone enjoys their weekend and go Lakers. The Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism.